Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. We promote exciting and positive visions of the future and those who are helping build it. Today, we're talking with Sam Bogwan, the co-founder and chief strategy officer of Gatsby. Gatsby is an open source web framework that enables developers to create websites optimized for the modern web. In doing so, they're ensuring that this digital web infrastructure that we all take for granted keeps improving and getting better. Let's jump right in. It's been really exciting to kind of see, as you said, like see the movement come together. Like, what are you like most optimistic about in this direction? I think there's a lot of things to be optimistic about in a lot of different places in the world. I mean, I think specifically with sort of the whole concept of progress, I think we've lost a little bit of our understanding of or belief in the idea of progress for a number of reasons. And I think there's a I think there's an opportunity to have sort of an intellectual understanding of the visceral ways in which technology makes our lives better, you know, and, and has for a long time. It seems like right now it's kind of this intellectual exercise. It's like, okay, like how do we define progress? How do we talk about it? But I think what what's going to be really exciting is when we can translate that into something that's like a bit more relatable for the everyday person. Because it seems like those of us kind of on this kind of tech, Twitter, like in Silicon Valley circles, like have an understanding of this concept, but it's not something that is easily accessible to, to most people. Yeah, I think it starts with a lot of the illuminating of the different storylines of progress, whether that's the historical stuff or sort of what's happening now. I was reading um, Robert Gordon's book with Jason Crawford from Roots of Progress and, and some other folks, and that's on economic history of the United States from, I think, 1870 to maybe 1950. And, and sort of in, in between, I was kind of texting my, my mother-in-law, who's very into family history stuff of like, you know, the tidbits of, of household living and how people's sort of wardrobes had changed over time. So, you know, it touches his historical, like that's historical things, but then there's also a ton of concrete examples, I think, that we see today as well, obviously. There's this kind of intellectual debate around like, is Robert Gordon right? Has progress slowed really? Or is kind of like the lens through which we're viewing it not shifted to where it needs to be? So so I have an interesting perspective on that in that um, I, I sort of see both worlds. You know, as an undergrad, I studied, I was an economics major, um, and I especially took a lot of uh, econ history classes. So there's a ton of sort of like famous econ history papers that study economic growth and historical perspective. There's Nordhaus's fire paper. He looks at the efficiency of wood burning or sort of light producing and how many lumens you get per watt from sort of prehistory to today and kind of uses this as kind of a rough way of modeling economic growth back really tens of thousands of years. You know, economics is a very sort of like specialized discipline that's that's really good at looking at this. A professor um, that I took some classes from, uh, Petra Mosier, um, had done her um, PhD thesis by going to the archives of the Crystal Palace uh, exhibit in London, um, which was, I think, in the 1850s. There was sort of this vast Crystal Palace in, in London where tens of sort of thousands of people came across from across the world with with various inventions. Um, and, and she did a comparative study of how innovation was happening in, you know, across different intellectual property regimes across Eastern Europe versus Western Europe versus North, like Scandinavia versus the U.S. And, and found a lot of fascinating stuff. So, so in undergrad, I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time sort of studying that. Then, you know, personally kind of ended up in tech, taught myself to program and went through sort of various jobs working for various startups as an engineer. Um, and now I've 
and now I'm uh, the co-founder of, of Gatsby, which is an um, open source framework for building websites. In undergraduate, you sort of see the, the, from an academic point of view, you see the study of historical progress, which I think is what, what Gordon is doing and has done. And now I'm sort of in the midst of folks, you know, who are trying to create technological change. And I think it's, it's sort of an interesting perspective kind of being in, in both camps. One of the things I was really keen to talk with you about is kind of like, what does the future of the open source movement look like? What does it like the future of the internet look like? Right? It seems like there's a lot of, there's a big question right now around, you know, kind of decentralization, sort of like Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon. But then we have this crazy wild decentralized movement seems to be picking up, picking up pace. I don't know, like from your perspective, like, what do you see? How do you think about this? So, so I think there's like a ton of threads here. And, and I think it's, you know, I think it's really interesting to kind of pick up on sort of a number of them. And I think Robert Gordon has a re, is re, a really good economist. And so he has a very good grasp of economic history, but economics is an academic discipline. And so it's not, you know, it's not sort of super embedded in the world of technology creation. Economists are not programmers. They're not rocket scientists. They're not sort of the people inventing the future. They're very good at analyzing the past. And, and so, you know, as sort of, I, I went through the, you know, career arc, you, you sort of, you obviously always keep the analytical skill set, but you sort of, you, you pick up a very kind of different skill set around, like, how do we think about, you know, what, what is the incremental possible um, that we can create sort of today? So with, with Robert Gordon, I, I would, I would say that, like, I trust his area, his expertise in his, you know, academic discipline. But when you're writing a book, you always have to have the last chapter. That's what comes next and what's the future. And so, you know, he took his best whack at, at answering, you know, his future, but I think his expertise doesn't lie in the future, right? It, it lies in the past. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's, so it's probably more instructive to look at sort of the technologies that are existing today and that are sort of promising today to, to get a sense of, well, how is technological change going to happen over the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 or so years? So then I think actually that transitions nicely into the history of the, the web, the open source, you know, in, in general, right? I think so. So centralization, I think, is an interesting thread. Maybe we can start there, right? You know, the web has kind of gone back and forth between pieces of centralization and decentralization, right? In its infancy, like the internet was a, you know, it was a DARPA creation, right? So there were sort of a few blessed nodes that were able to kind of connect to each other. You had to have an academic affiliation to get in, right? And then sort of like, you know, 1991, 1992, 1993, eternal September uh, happens. You sort of have these, you know, wave of folks coming onto the internet, internet growth rates at like 2,300% per year in 1993, 1984, which is what gets, you know, Bezos to start. Amazon is sort of this vast flowering and decentralization where, you know, everybody kind of starts different websites, right? And, and and so the internet is sort of very centralized to suddenly there's sort of decentralization. And then, then after, you know, sort of after that happens, and all these threads are sort of layers, right, that like build on top of each other. So you, you sort of have that following. And then like, you know, you see sort of like, you know, Google gets started and Facebook gets started and like then, you know, all, all the social networks and there's sort of like a centralized, you know, sort of a centralized strata on top of like that centralized, you know, on top of the decentralized layers. We also see obviously like the centralized, certain centralized verticals, right? Uh, payments is one. There's only a few sort of folks that offer payments. They're kind of strictly regulated, which, you know, leads them to, for better or worse, and I think it can be both, you know, sort of ban certain types of transactions or discourage other types of transactions. And you have sort of a, sort of a few vendors in, in certain, in certain, um, 
in certain verticals. And, and again, that's like a, a level of a decentralization or level of centralization. But, but in, in the meantime, right, it continues to be the case that, you know, thousands, hundreds, you know, millions of folks are kind of creating websites and creating web presences on the internet to kind of continue that thread, right? You saw WordPress is sort of like was the first really, really popular CMS, very kind of aligned with open source, very aligned with like decentralization, very sort of aligned with the idea that like, hey, you own your domain, you own your identity, you know, you have the right to kind of control sort of content on your site, but also like commenting, right, as a, as a, behavioral paradigm, right? That was super popular in blogs in the 2000s, right? We don't really see comments anymore. We, you know, people mostly have turned them off. Well, why, why did they turn them off? Well, it turns out that they're actually not super useful, right? Like <laughs> right. they don't add a lot of value. So like, you know, you have a lot of spam, you know, the things that aren't spam, maybe are the users. You, you don't really want to give them as much prominent of a voice as like comments allow you to, as comments kind of give them. So maybe you just turn it off and have the discussion on Twitter, right? And and I think like, you know, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I, I mean, I don't know. I think, again, maybe it's both, but partly, you know, partly at the end of the day, like decentralization and centralization will happen to the, to the degree that various user behaviors or central platforms have value to users. And so I think like, you know, the, the conversation about, whether the web should be centralized or decentralized is, is real, is true. But at the same time, if we want to encourage one versus the other, we need to figure out how to create value in, in one paradigm versus the other one. Can you elaborate on a kind of how you're tackling that with Gatsby? You know, maybe it's sort of worthwhile before kind of like diving into kind of Gatsby specifically to talk about, you know, sort of in the, the context of centralization and decentralization, certainly to talk a little bit about open source. So open source... You, you, you saw open source kind of spring out in the late, you know, mid, mid to kind of mid to late 80s um, and really sort of like the first the, the open source, you know, context for, you know, context for folks or, or just maybe a, a useful definition is that and it's changed over time. Right. But is that open source is software that is kind of free to use and also free to sort of contribute to and kind of be modified by and then reused. So rather than kind of being distributed, created by one person and distributed to a number of people, it ends up being a little bit more of like a, a collaboration between a community of, of developers. So you had early sort of like early open source days were the creation of Linux in the you know early 90s, which kind of built on top of some work that had been done in, in, in the, the uh, 1980s by Richard Stallman, which is the first sort of like open source operating system. And the evolution of Linux is kind of like an interesting thing, right? You saw you know, you saw Linux being adopted a ton in, in servers and enterprise data centers, essentially for business use cases, but you never saw like it really catch on as a personal, as sort of like an operating system on, on desktop, like Ubuntu never really took off, right? Until it kind of took off in the form of Android, which is kind of built on top of uh, what a lot of people don't realize, but and, and like Android is kind of built on top of that in the mobile operating system world. Open source kind of started in, in sort of like the developer, um, the, the sort of the, the developer really deep in the developer stack. So operating systems like databases and has kind of more recently migrated kind of like, you know, up the stack, like web frameworks. And some, sometimes you see projects like, you know, Wikipedia, most kind of like famously, that, that's actually brought it out of the, that where it's actually kind of come out of the developer sphere into sort of the world where, into sort of a world where, you know, just your ordinary person on the street is going to be familiar with like an open source thing. and, and kind right. of <laughs> um, But uh, 
sort of like the, the promise of open source is, is, again, the promise of decentralization. You, you see, allowing people, no matter where they were in the world, to kind of collaborate on a thing together, right? Open source means that like you are your you know, you are your email that you have on, on a listserv or your username on, on, on GitHub and the reputation that you build on that. It's kind of irrelevant whether you live in, you know, San Francisco or, um, you know, Denver or Omaha or like Estonia or like Siberia or like India or Indonesia. Like, you know, it, like it, it's sort of democratizing and, and egalitarian and, and sort of allows folks to contribute on sort of equal grounds, no matter where they are in, in the world, which is um, really a, a beneficial sort of like, it's not only a beneficial force in terms of what it does to people, but like in unlocking sort of like talent that otherwise wouldn't have the ability to sort of, you know, give, give back, I think tends to create types of software that couldn't exist otherwise, as well as the quali- qualities of software that um, would otherwise not be possible. If we do kind of a historical analysis, like what what enabled this kind of environment to emerge where people are able to contribute and you can be anywhere in the world and participate in the creation of these sorts of things and find community and like show off your skills. Was it Git that kind of initially drove this? Like it's a number of things. So I think like, you know, the, the Internet sort of being the first and, and kind of greatest, you know, enabling force. So Linux was sent, Linus Torvalds, when he created the, the Linux kernel, was a 21-year-old university student at a university in Finland and just sort of emailed it to a listserv that he was part of and was like, hey, I just did this thing, um, you know, I don't know if it's kind of production ready, but like it's an interesting project. And then kind of people took that and then they, you know, built on top of it, sort of glued things to it until it was kind of feature complete, you know, a kernel is is sort of the core of an operating system, but there's a lot of other pieces that needed to be put together, stability, bug fixes, all that. And so, you know, within a couple of years, you know, his random hobby project became something that like a hundred people were kind of contributing to emails and listserv. That's actually interesting because, you know, again, I think something that people don't realize is he was looking so 12 years later, you know, at this point, Linux is at this point, he's, you know, written a book. Linux is kind of a huge part of computing, very common, especially as like people, you know, especially during the dot-com boom, a lot easier to stand up like a, you know, a Linux server than like buy a Apache, sorry, than buy like a Solaris server from Sun or, or whatever else. So really common to use Linux servers. And then he's like, well, we need a new collab. Linus Torvalds is like, we need a new collaboration model here. Like this sort of email patch system is just really difficult to kind of implement. Like we need some sort of version control software that's distributed. And so he takes, I don't know, three, four months and writes this thing and says, hey, I've like created this new thing to help us simplify our contribution model. And I'm calling it Git. Then Linux starts kind of like running on on Git. And then... um, and people are like, oh, wow, like this is, you know, there have been kind of previous version control softwares. But if you look at sort of circa 2000, there were very, very low adoption rates, right? Like um, Joel Sposky wrote a blog post in, in 2000 and he was like, you know, if you can find a company with version control, like work for that company because you don't want to be working with it for a company without version control. And today we read that blog post and we're like, what? There are companies without version control? Like, 
you know, as, as an engineer, you're just sort of like used to like, it just feels like water to you. It's, it's just yeah. part of the ecosystem. So Lance Torvalds um, sort of like makes this thing, like Linux starts kind of operating on this model. And then uh, like, then a couple of folks in the, the Ruby on Rails community at that point, like Ruby on Rails is sort of the hot new, you know, web framework. And they're like, Hey, like, this is really interesting. Like, this is really a better way of, of doing software collaboration than like, you know, the, the current systems that we have. Why don't we sort of stand up an online service to enable people to kind of use Git and collaborate with, with like, because basically, you know, Git is a distributed version control system, right? Which means that you need a, it sort of requires a centralized repo or a source of truth about like, hey, you, you're working on this branch of code and I'm working on that branch of code and we're going to like merge these two branches in together. And, um, you know, then we're going to end up with the sort of the, the main copy of code that, that's going to be running on our production servers. But, you, you know, you have a bunch of people working on their laptops and you need something to sort of pull it all together. And so so Tom Preston Werner and, and, and a, a couple of friends like make this thing called GitHub and they're like, yeah, you know, it's the easiest way to run your Git. And it's just this sort of like cool idea it, you know, circa was like 2007, 2008, that like, you know, over the next kind of decade becomes really the thing that popularizes, you know, Git as a model of collaboration, popularizes kind of open source as something that anybody can kind of contribute to just by giving visibility to essentially like lets you surface your projects, right? And and anything that you're working on, you can just kind of put, push it up like, hey, here's a link to my project. Like I'm working on this, like, is this interesting? Like I'm trying to solve X problem in Y ecosystem. Maybe I'll, I'll sort of append some some kind of personal history and kind of seg into the uh, the history of Gatsby a little bit here. So, you know, in, in 2015, um, you know, my best friend, co-founder, uh, Kyle Matthews was working on a, a startup with a friend. And he um, he was like, I need a new website for the startup, but I don't like any of the existing web frameworks. I mean, he, he'd been sort of in the website world um, in Drupal, which is another sort of open source content management system world for, for years and years. He's like, eh, that doesn't feel modern anymore. I, you know, And there's this new web framework called React, and it's the right way of doing development. Like, this is the way that front-end development should be built. But there's not really a good way to make React work on websites. It's more like you sort of embed it in your web app, but it's not really like in, in the website world. And so he's like, okay, like I'll sort of take a week, you know, instead of just building a website, I'm going to build a framework to build a website, build the website, and then I'm going to open source the framework. So, you know, he takes a week, kind of does that. And then over the next kind of like days, weeks, months, like, you know, people start like, hey, start sort of commenting and like have issues saying like, hey, you know, I like this. This is great. I built my personal website with this. You know, I built my company, my you know startups website with this. I built my blog with this. Um, hey, you know, here's a patch. Here's a pull request. Here's some code that can kind of improve it. And uh, you know, as React kind of starts taking off in popularity, he starts getting invited to like React conferences. And and uh, you know, he, he he would like you know just kind of like ask the, the the question at the beginning of the talk. You know, maybe there'd be like 500 people in the audience or a thousand people in the audience. He'd be like, so uh, who here is like heard of Gatsby, you know, who here is using Gatsby? And like a third of the people in the audience would raise their hands and he'd be like, I literally just, you know, kind of pushed this thing, you know, up as like, just kind of, I wasn't even thinking about it. It's like a toy. Yeah, I guess it's bigger. Like, are this many, are, are this many people really using it? And the answer was yes, right? Like, because it was just easy, you know, you could easily sort of like install it, you know, deploy it and, you know, and build your, build your website on it. And so people just, you know, it's sort of developers like him who were like unsatisfied with the existing paradigm of CMS building, looking for like a static site generator, looking to use React, like 
aha, Gatsby is the thing that lets us do both of those. And, you know, before sort of like over the you know, couple of years, like got to, you know, thousands of people using it every week. I mean, he was maintaining this thing maybe, you know, a few hours a week or so. It's so cool. Like just the concept of like, okay, let's throw this out there. And then like, oh, wait, no, no, we want this. Like, oh, we want to be a part of this. And then because of, it seems like because of the kind of the nature of the open source community or that like kind of idea space, we're just able to jump in and contribute. Like, oh, here, what about this? And it's like submit pull requests and improvements. And then it just kind of takes on a life of its own. One of the evolutions, so I mean, you know, open source has gone through a ton of waves. But one of the evolutions I think we're seeing now is, is the evolution of community contribution. So there's a ton of really interesting um, stuff that folks have um, written about this. Like Nadia Eggball's uh, book is a, a really um, is a really good one that I'd recommend to anyone uh, uh, to, to anyone that's um, interested. Work it's called Working in Public: The Making and Maintenance of Open Source Software, um, right? Uh, and so she, you know, she kind of segments it into open source projects into sort of four distinct um, groups, like a two by two quadrant. So on one axis you have like usage of the projects, and on the other axis you have kind of like contributions to the projects. So there are some projects that are sort of low usage, but high contribution. So there's like a community of tight-knit people that are using it. So she uses like AstroPy as an example there. There's astronomists, you need some certain libraries in Python and like there are a ton of astronomers in the world, but like they all really need this. So they all sort of like work on it together. The other thing is like high... um, High usage and uh, and low um, but but low sort of contribution and she calls those like stadiums. So those are typically like complicated pieces of software where they're just very intricate and it's it's difficult for an average user of the software to kind of contribute to that. So uh, there's JavaScript sort of compiler transpiler type software like Babel and and, and Webpack are you know examples that a JavaScript programmer would would kind of recognize that that fit in that category. Tools like Docker also are, which is a containerization software. So because in databases are in, in, in are often there as well, right? Because to, to actually write a database, you have to write in C, which is, you know, and you, you need to be really, really good at C. And it's sort of the same thing for like containerization. You need to know how like the Linux container does virtualization and like, just that's a skill set very few people have. I mean, I, I have no idea how to do that. Like, um, and, but but to use it, right, you have to be like an application developer. So any sort of average, any sort of, I shouldn't say that, any sort of Ruby, you know, Python, JavaScript, you know, developer can uh, can, can use use it, right? So it's great. These are obviously incredible technologies. But the, the tricky part from like an open source, you know, contribution standpoint is that like, you don't have the ability to have as big of a vibrant community when you have a, a gulf between the, the folks that are kind of contributing and the folks that are using. And, and so that, that kind of brings to the, 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 the fourth part of the quadrant that Nadia kind of outlines, which is uh, she calls federations. Um, and she uses like Rust as uh, the, the language as, as an example of this, which are uh, projects with a high degree of usage and a uh, and high degree of contribution. And so um, these projects are incredibly valuable for a couple of reasons. One, they have a high degree of usage, so a lot of people are using it. And second, with their high degree of contribution, they have the ability to evolve really quickly, right? And so one of the things that you, you, you notice when you've been in software for a while is that everything is kind of like gets driven by rate of change. Um, so the things that evolve faster, over time, they generally tend to win, whereas the things that kind of struggle to change um, or change more slowly uh, tend to lose out because they, they just miss the next sort of the next market trend or the next feature that everybody wants. They're like, you know, six months late, 12 months late, whereas, you know, things that move faster, maybe six months before. So over time, the things that move faster sort of gain gain share of, you know, developer tools of whatever else. And, and 
that's a lot of how Gatsby works in terms of architecturally with the, with, we, we created a plugin system to kind of enable that sort of contribution and behavior where like a user could create like a plugin that, that other people use. And, and there's other models for that. WordPress like does that, for example, as well. In many ways, like open source federations, you know, Rust, you know, Kubernetes is a great example. That's like really one and really sort of one in the infrastructure space for sort of that's for folks that are not familiar that it's basically a technology that lets you run servers at scale. So if you're trying to provision not just one server, but like 10, but like a hundred servers or like a thousand servers and kind of coordinate all the different containers running different processes, fix anything that like goes awry. So Kubernetes, I think is a great example of, in, in Scott, it's obviously a ton of flaws, but like one of the advantages it has is it is so large, has such a large and vibrant community of contributors that like you kind of see new projects springing up in the ecosystem all the time. And also like it, it's able to attain feature completeness a lot quicker than like, it essentially boxed out other solutions because it's been able to attain such feature completeness that it just becomes a barrier that like any new thing trying to do what it's doing would have to kind of solve too many problems to get started quickly. I want to kind of like zoom out like on the kind of the concept more broadly around kind of like open source projects. Oh wait, perhaps abstracting away from software and, and kind of talking about how this sort of like federation model might shape like physical world projects as well moving forward. It seems like a really like exciting time because we get, we now have the tools for people to coordinate online and they can connect and they can talk about these things. I mean, primarily as a result, as a result of Twitter, it's like, what sort of things can we create? Like, I think it's CBD, like, you know, info products are, you know, whether that's writing or code, you know, or, you know, it's kind of interesting or, or, you know, other forms of media because they're sort of zero cost creation. You know, you can access them anywhere, no matter where you are, right? Like you, the code looks the same. You don't need to ship code across the world, right? Like, you know, Wikipedia is the other sort of like example that folks know a lot about. You say open source. I think Wikipedia is open source. You know, a bunch of people made it because, you know, people can people can edit sort of like text anywhere, no matter where they are on the internet. There, there are some interesting um, approaches. Um, yeah, I know a couple of people, my, my friend Anthony is working on an open insulin um, project. Oh, okay. So, so biotech is like interesting, right? In the sense of like biotech, to some degree, it's kind of like, I would say information driven in the sense of like formulas and, and processes, but obviously there's a huge physical component to it as well. And, and so insulin is kind of challenging because you can't just kind of synthesize it in, in big vats the way you could, you know, normally do with like, with the way you can do with chemicals, you need to sort of like specific cell cultures and, and, and stuff to, to do it. And so he's trying to kind of popularize a set of instructions to help folks sort of synthesize insulin. And, and especially this is like, can be really helpful in like the developing world where the cost of like products like insulin is, you know, relatively much more um, expensive. A, a friend of mine actually in the Philippines, uh, Khalil Carrazo is working on, um, is working on sort of open source biology in general. And I think, I mean, there's a lot of folks working on it. I think obviously there are, there are challenges because it's harder to do this in the physical world, but I'm really excited to see what happens over the next five or 10 years and to see like, you know, if the kinks can be worked out. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, but I think like doing the work that, that you've been doing and seeing kind of the power of the open source community like firsthand, that should give you like really like strong, like. I'm incredibly excited to kind of see, to see the potential. Like, I think like there's this, you know, there's a saying that I've heard it sort of attributed a couple of different places, but no matter where you are in the world, no matter, you know, who you work for, you know, the smartest people are always in a, you know, not in your organization or like not in your locale. And I think especially right, like as sort of the, the non-first world sort of gets more and more immersed, there's just 
you know, there, there's incredibly smart people. We, we built Gatsby as a remote first company. We have about 50 folks, you know, and I'd say that like very few folks live in the major U.S. tech cities that most companies are headquartered in. And we started, obviously, a lot of folks are doing this now that there's, you know, COVID, but like, you know, we did, we started this in 2018, sort of like, you know, we, we've got folks living, you know, we've got folks living in, in West Africa, we've got folks living yeah, in, in India, we've got folks living in Siberia, we've got folks living in Eastern Europe. And, you know, there's incredible people everywhere. And, you know, the, the power of open source is in some sense, like this global brain, right? You can, yeah. where like, no matter where you are, you can kind of plug into it. And when you, when you spend the bulk of your time, you know, chatting with your collaborator that's in Poland, for example, like there's a disintegration of borders that happens a little bit in a way that was very difficult to, you know, imagine, you know, 30 years ago, like instant, not, not just communication, right. But collaboration, working together. Another trend that kind of accelerates this is the rollout of tools like Starlink, where more people are able to get high speed internet access, not, you know, let me see if, let me hold my phone up in the sky and see if I can get like some of my packets, like receive and send. It's like, Oh, I can stream 4k video literally anywhere on the planet it's incredible to watch and 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 i think like i mean you know there's a saying right you overestimate what technology will do in you know one year and you you underestimate what technology will do in 10 we've been trying to make this work for the last 10 years right project loon google sent up those kind of big balloons you know it turned out that wasn't the right solution you know it turned out it was you know elon sending up satellites instead right you know but you know it took us like you know 10 years to settle on the right paradigm but now that we have, you know, you've got folks, they have a farm and like they're like rural America has very poor internet con- connectivity in a lot of places, right? If you're, you know, sort of like in a rural area, if you're in a forest, if you're, you know, in a, in a forest, maybe you went and you know, you're, you went to a cabin in the woods and let alone like, you know, let alone you're in, you know, rural India and like, and you, your best internet is sort of 2G. So I mean, we, we see this in a very kind of like visceral way. With Gatsby, actually, interestingly, one of the sort of the benefits of uh, one of the reasons people use Gatsby is that the architecture makes loading pages kind of incredibly fast. And so uh, if you're on an Ethernet like desktop connection, you know, the, the, the difference between a five megabyte page and a one megabyte page is not really material to you. But if you're on like a, you know, if you're on a mobile connection, especially if you're on a mobile like 2G or 3G connection outside the developed world, like it can make the difference between, you know, a a reasonable like one or two second page load and like a 20 second page load or like a timeout. And over time, right, like interestingly, like we've seen sort of the recommended page uh, weights to have incredibly fast, to have like a sort of a normal user experience, even if you're on a five-year-old Android smartphone on, you know, 3G or whatever, like those have kind of consistently trended up over time by a factor of like two or three, you know, even in the last just four or five years, which is just, you know, you sort of see technological progress on a very concrete level. Especially when you zoom out, right? Because in the moment, you're like, oh, all this stuff's broken. But when you like zoom out, you look at like the 10 year, the 20 year, it's like, oh, stuff is happening very, very, very quickly. I want to jump back to the, this open source we talked about the, the biology, but other other fields of science and how, like Eric, Eric Weinstein talks about the challenges in academia and in, in the institutions, particularly like in the physics community where everyone, according to him, is like obsessed with string theory and like no one's willing to move on and like try anything else because there's no, there's no incentive. In fact, there's like a counter incentive to a disincentive to do this in like one of these existing institutions. But 
there may be an opportunity for this open source model to allow people to anonymously contribute ideas and collaborate on these things at scale and perhaps be financially incentivized to do it through different like blockchain or crypto setups. So I think like crypto has a really interesting promise to offer to sort of like before we kind of like go to academia, I think you make a really good point that crypto has a lot to offer open source in terms of figuring out um, ways of rewarding people that that contribute sort of programmatically in some sense. Ethereum has done this. I'm forgetting the, the name of the exact mechanism that they used to do this, but they sort of retrospectively look back at code, not just like lines of code, but sort of how much each piece of code was used on their chain over time. And then they're able to kind of then they have sort of a fund that is like programmatically allocated, you know, to con- to contributors in proportion to the amount that their code was used, right? And, and so like, you know, I think open source is very much a gift economy where sort of people contribute for kind of for free because they, they, it's a hobby and it's like really cool. And that's great and to grow the size of the open source community and the contributions that happen over time. It's really important to think about, you know, incentive structure. And some of that incentive structure just comes from being able to stay like in an interview. Yeah, I worked on this open source project or, or whatever. Gatsby is also part of like a, I've also sort of seen a, a trend right happening with commercial open source where companies like Gatsby are open source projects, but also kind of commercial entities and are able to kind of employ people to work full-time on open source projects. And, you know, we've seen a number of kind of commercial successes um, these days and over, certainly over the last like four years, companies like Elastic and and Mongo that are now worth, you know, over $10 billion. Um, And that's kind of prompted a, a growth in the whole commercial open source ecosystem where people, you know, sort of the investors realize like, okay, like, this isn't just sort of like a, a one-off model where like a weird company like Red Hat can become a really big company, but it's actually a, it's actually a formula that you can apply over and over again. And that means that, that they can invest in it, which means that, you know, companies can get funding, which means that the companies can invest in it by hiring, you know, engineers and, and paying them to, to, to work on sort of open source as well as right to, you know, encourage community contributions and, community management in general. So that, that's sort of like another kind of like big, you know, piece of the puzzle. So I think open source is like expanding beyond sort of the central kind of like the sort of the old gift economy, kind of some ideological kind of um, some ideological origins as well to sort of a, a broader base as these kind of institutions are coming in to really fund the public goods, which is again, like, you know, kind of like an intersection, right? My, my econ sort of undergrad days. <laughs> in current life, you see this as really a public goods problem, which is that like, you know, open source, there's an XKCD cartoon that's really good, which is, it kind of shows the um, the internet as like a tower that's like resting on this like rod and the, the label on the rod is like, you know, guy in Nebraska who's been like maintaining this open source project since uh, you know 2004. That, that's a public goods problem. We don't expect some random engineer or mechanic to maintain the, the you know, Brooklyn Bridge or the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, obviously, like, you know, we, we, we're able to invest in that as a, as a society. Um, and, and so like having, you know, having various sort of like mechanisms to help encourage investment into the open source commons to create something that is then used by everyone is, is is the huge thing I think is you know kind of emerging really more and more over in the last five years and I think we we'd seen sort of like previously now, now how that, that gets into academia is is, is a different question yeah, one yeah. I mean, we don't have as much expertise to answer but I I think there are certainly ways to do that yeah I, I think the, the the trend really that I'm 
most excited about here is kind of this, yeah, the intersection of crypto and, and open source and how like it, it enables people to, I mean, like kind of take that gifting model actually like, oh, hey, you contributed to this code base. So like, hey, here's this, or, or like Bology has that, that project where it's like, go track inflation. I think it's like a like a hundred thousand dollar, like a million dollar reward or something. If you can go build that, that's sweet, right? And then like that can be open so people can contribute, like contribute on it. They can split the prize money, the purse money. Like, I think prize money. I mean, pr- prize money in general is is I think like a an interesting mechanism that's been used. Obviously, we see this with like the what was it, like the Ansari um, the spaceship one, the prize that like that was awarded of like a million dollars or ten million dollars for a specific milestone, you know, several years ago. And that kind of helped prompt a lot of the, the aeronautics and rocket stuff that we're, we're seeing today with SpaceX, you know, sort of like prize and, and reward money for doing specific things. You see this with bug bounties, right? You see this with, with bug bounties in the, the security industry, right? I, I think there's, you know, there, there's always a challenge when you're, when you're sort of putting a price on something that was kind of previously free, you can kind of have a backlash around that. So I think it will be important to, I think over time, hopefully we'll see, it'll not just sort of start to happen, but it'll happen. Maybe it'll start to happen. There'll be some jumps and starts, but we'll we'll find it like bug bounties, right? A good way of doing it that feels like both inspiring to the community and useful and sort of produces useful um, additional incremental, you know, features and bug fixes. Totally. Last thing for you that I want to kind of cover here. Outside of the kind of software and open source space and in the, in the biology space, since we touched on it a little bit, like what are you most excited about for the future? I'll say the thing that probably every you know parent would say is my kids <laughs> um, on a personal level, right? Like I think, you know, it's, you know, this is a very personal decision for everybody, but I think for me, for me personally, like, you know, ha- having, having kids makes me incredibly excited about the future and hopeful and invested in, in sort of like creating a world that all, of, you know, all of our kids will, will be proud to grow up in. So, so that's my, I think my, my probably like number one answer. Um, and, and my n- number two answer is I think like, I think there's a lot of power in the trends that have played out in the last 10 years, like playing out in the next 10 years, right? We saw software as a service, like, you know, take over all, almost every, like will so, sort of start to gain a foothold in almost every sort of vertical and really increase efficiency, improve workflows and make sort of people's people more productive at work, right? Like the, in some sense, right, we're only seeing the the tip of the iceberg there because the adoption is, you know, maybe just the first five or 10% of, and, and there's still the, the next, you know, 95% of like industries and firms in each kind of like vertical that can adopt the like cloud and SaaS business workflow technologies. And that's not exciting per se. It's not rocketry, but it it, it, is, it is the thing that, I think it is the thing that will do the, do the most to increase you know, productivity and, uh, and, and, and spur productivity growth. Amazing. Sam, where can, where can people find you and any kind of calls to action for people? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at CalcSam, that's C-A-L-C-S-A-M. And you can also find my blog at Moore'sHand.io. Moore's Law, right? Yep. Moore's Law on the Invisible Hand, which, you know, I, I think is, I think is a great kind of metaphor for the, the power that computing has to kind of improve people's lives over the long term. Cool. Sam, thanks so much for coming on, man. This is this is a blast. Thanks for having me, Kim. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you want to support the show, please share your favorite episode with a friend. And if you want to get updates on the events we're hosting, new podcast episodes, and follow along as we build the new World's Fair, 
You can follow me on Twitter at C-A-M-W-I-E-S-E. Until next time, go build.